Once again, turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 12. Found in the Old Testament right before the Psalms, a couple of books back from the Psalms. Nehemiah chapter 12 will be the text for this morning's sermon. God's had us in Ezra and Nehemiah since October of last year in a sermon series entitled Return, Rebuild, and Reform. And today God has us in chapter 12 and It seems that next week he'll have us in 13 once and for all, and we will leave this series and move on to other other places. Nehemiah chapter 12 is our text, but this morning I want you to keep your place there and also turn to Ezra chapter 1, the book right before Nehemiah. Go to the first chapter and the first verse of Ezra's book. We're going to be back and forth a little bit in the early parts of this sermon as we review what God has done with the people of Judah. So, Nehemiah 12 is where we are in the moment. I want you to look specifically at verse 27 with me. Let's read that and kick off our sermon time this morning. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Now look at verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The walls have been rebuilt, the city has been reestablished and repopulated, and we find ourselves in the text of Scripture here today with a dedication ceremony where the people celebrate the completion, the ultimate completion of their return from exile to Jerusalem. We would do really well today to pause, back up all the way to the beginning of this saga, and watch exactly what has transpired over the decades to the point now where the people are celebrating the rededication of the walls. And so that's why I have you in the book of Ezra in chapter 1. And before we do that, I want you to turn one page to the left and you'll find yourself in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Because this story begins there. We need to understand why these walls had to be rededicated. They had to be rededicated because they had to be rebuilt. They had to be rebuilt because they were destroyed and torn down. So we need to go all the way back to 2 Chronicles 36. And we need to understand that the people of Judah were exiled to Babylon as punishment for their disobedience of God and the defying of His commands and His word. In 2 Chronicles 36, we see that the people had been grossly disobedient to God and His commands. Look with me in verse 14. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful. Following all the abominations of the nations, they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept 
mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. God was patient. He was slow to anger. He was long-suffering with these disobedient, greatly unfaithful people. You know, God of the Old Testament gets a really bad rap. People often say the God of the Old Testament's all full of wrath and anger, and the God of the New Testament's full of love. No, I see a ton of love right here because these people were exceedingly unfaithful. And what did God do? Time and time again, He sent messenger after messenger after messenger pleading with the people to turn from their wicked ways. I see a patient and a loving and a gracious and long suffering God in the Old Testament. But they despised his warnings and his prophets and scoffed at them and mocked them. And finally, the Lord needed to display his wrath. And there was no other remedy, the text says. I want to pause. May we never scoff at God's word as it comes at us. As we get instruction from God's word, may we never reject it. And may we never reject those who come with God's word to us, proclaiming it faithfully. Because it's the kindness of God that these prophets went to these people. It's the kindness of God that a man would come and preach. Teachers would teach. Let's don't scoff at those messengers so long as they're faithful to the text. That God has inspired? Well, the people of Judah were now being punished by God. And they were punished with a Babylonian exile. Look in verse 17, still in 2 Chronicles 36. Therefore, he, and that he is God. Therefore, God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who we know later to be Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. God gave them all into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Verse 18. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. And they burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the day that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. There's precision here. God disciplined his people for their good and for his glory. It was good that Judah was exiled to Babylon. It was good for Judah that the temple was destroyed and that the walls were torn down. It was good for them. And it is serving the purpose of bringing God glory. Well, there were three waves of exile. In that Babylonian sacking of Jerusalem, there were three waves. The first wave included a young man named Daniel, 
We've got a book written after. The, the second wave included Ezekiel and the writer of that book. And the third wave had this Jeremiah that we've heard from already. I want you to hear what God said through that prophet Jeremiah on the front end of this exile. In Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 10, just listen to this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. Now that's the 70 that 2 Chronicles 36 is talking about. There are 70 Sabbaths that the Lord will require of these people. Now he says through Jeremiah, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. This is a good God. And I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is a loving God. He's going to hunt his people down like a hound to restore them, not to throttle them. And he promises this to them at the time that he's got the rod in his hand and he's disciplining them. So here we see through Jeremiah that God makes a promise. Do you think he's going to keep it? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah, these two books are all about, you can simply boil it down to this, they are all about God fulfilling his promise through Jeremiah after 70 years. That's what the books are about. So now we turn a corner. We're in Ezra chapter 1. And we see where God now delivers on this promise. We see the return of Judah to Jerusalem. And guess what? It happens in three waves. (laughs) There's symmetry here. God is a God of order, not chaos. There's three waves of return. The first wave is in Ezra chapter 1. It's led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua, priests of God. Ezra 1, 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And here's what he wrote. Verse two, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Now He conquered Babylon and defeated Nebuchadnezzar to become the king to say this. Now, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me. To build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. This is a pagan king. 
saying this because there's a sovereign God controlling his tongue. So during the the wave of returnees led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua, we get the altar rebuilt, the temple is rebuilt, and for the first time in generations, the Passover is celebrated. That's all the details of Ezra 3, 4, 5, and 6. We go to Ezra chapter 7 now. We see wave two of returnees coming back from Babylon, Persia. It's led by Ezra. That's the first time we meet the man. Ezra is in chapter 7 of the book that bears his name. Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, skip to verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Verse 9. On the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules to all of Israel. In wave two, God sends a faithful reformer. Named Ezra. And his means of reformation is right here in the text. The law of the Lord. And Ezra is sent to teach the people from the book of the law of Moses. And oh, does he do it. And it was kind of God to send a man with the law of God to the people to reform them and to call them back to right worship. Wave three was led by Nehemiah. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter one now. Nehemiah chapter one, we see in verse two, beginning there, that Hanani, one of my brothers, this is Nehemiah speaking, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had served the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. What a response. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utter parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Remember that promise, Lord, is what Nehemiah prays. It's a good prayer. 
He's calling on God to fulfill God's promises. He's going to get a yes to that. Because God cannot deny Himself honoring His promises. So Nehemiah goes back. He leads the people in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Look at Nehemiah 6.15. In Nehemiah 6.15, we see that the wall is finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. We're not singing the praises of man here. We're singing the praises of God, who in fulfilling his promises sends Ezra, then Nehemiah, and he enables these people to rebuild the walls after they've returned to the city. Then we see Nehemiah and Ezra both lead the people in reforming their hearts. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. This is after the walls have been built, the temple's been built, and the altar's been reestablished. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I pray that's happening right now. Verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Why? So that they might be reformed to God's ways. A lot happened in 8 and 9, but look at chapter 9, verse 38. Because of this reformation of the heart, Brought about by the word of God. The people say in verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this. We make a firm covenant in writing. They are reformed. God has captured their hearts. And he did it with their word. And he did it with faithful spiritual leaders. Nehemiah and Ezra. And that brings us now to this moment in Nehemiah chapter 12. It's the history of how we get to this ceremony on top of these rebuilt walls. The people have fully returned from exile. The holy city, the city of God, has been totally rebuilt, including these walls now. And the people of God, these holy people set apart by God, have been thoroughly reformed by His Word. And so we are at the high point, the pinnacle of the Ezra-Nehemiah history. This is the sweet spot in both of these books. The best moment. The Israelites here, these people of Judah, could not be in better standing before God compared to where they've been. So we have to 
encounter scriptures like this from time to time and ask ourselves questions. Because again, we don't want a history lesson here. It's got to be some application to us. And we need to, when we survey this kind of history in the people of God, of the Old Testament, we need to ask the question, is there anything about me that would point to the fact that I need to return to God? We all live in moments in life where we need to return to the Lord our God. We've strayed. We need to ask the question, do I need to rebuild aspects of my life so that it looks like what God intended it to be? And so that it then brings honor and glory to God? Because that's why He gave me a life. That's why He made me in His image and likeness. So that I might demonstrate His glory to the world. Do I need to rebuild something in my life? Maybe tear something down and put something in its place. And we always need to be asking ourselves the question, do I need to reform? Do I need to recalibrate my heart and my mind? If we're going to return to God, if we're going to rebuild our lives around God, if we're going to reform our hearts to God, we have to be a people of God's book because this is how we do it. We must be about that continually because we are not too far from these people of Judah. Well, we get to this chapter 12 and what we have unfold before us in these verses is pure, clean, congregational worship. It's a beautiful sight. It's something to be imitated in the New Testament church that we are. We look at chapter 12, it's a big long chapter, it's another one of those chapters with a lot of names. Those names are important, aren't they? Because they point to the faithfulness of God. Nehemiah 12, 1 through 26 is all devoted to detailing for us the succession plan of the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. Verse 24, they're all assembled, look at that, according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. The main point in these 26 verses is that the organization established by God through David for driving the people through God-honoring worship remained intact and it survived disobedience. Exile, return, rebuilding, and reforming. It survived and it's still in place. The return to exiles succeeded in maintaining continuity in their spiritual leadership. And oh, that was really, really important. Because people are not going to go where leaders don't go. We, we look now at chapter 12 verse 27 and following and let's let's drill in and get specific on some things here because 12 27 through 43 depicts for us the ceremony of celebration and dedication of these walls 
And I lift from those verses five observations that I think merit our attention this morning real quickly. The first one is found in verse 30. We see there that the spiritual leaders of Israel are purified before they do anything to lead the people in this worship ceremony. It says in verse 30, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves. The spiritual leaders in Old Testament Israel, in the New Testament church, cannot lead people until they are pure before God first. We cannot ask people to go where we have not already tread. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 23. Boy, he gets serious on these Pharisees and these scribes. Listen to Matthew 23 too. Jesus says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, but do not do the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And by implication, he says, yet they're dirty and impure themselves. New Testament times and now in modern times, churches are often led by pastors who are not willing to be pure themselves as they exhort people to be pure. And there is a debris trail of such churches all across the land. Spiritual leaders must be qualified, yes, and must be faithful, certainly. They got to be those before they can lead people in worship. That's why Paul tells Timothy the elder, you keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You hear the purification call? Keep a close watch on yourself. You be pure. And you keep a close watch on your teaching. And your teaching, your doctrine, and your actions have got to match And when they don't, you need to repent because we're not perfect. There is an emphasis throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to spiritual leaders being pure before God before they go to the people and say, let's be pure before God. Point number two, we see the purification of people still in verse 30. After the priests and Levites purified themselves, then they purified the people and the gates and the wall. The people of God cannot be devoted to worship unless they are pure before God also. David understood this. If you remember David, he is guilty of laziness. He's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of murder. He's guilty of deception. He's guilty of coveting. And he penned the words of Psalm 51, specifically verses 7 and 10, where he says, as a result of his confession of these sins to God, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 
Because he understood that he, for him to rightly worship God, he had to be pure. And at the moment, he was defiled by his sin. The people, the text doesn't tell us this, but if you understand Old Testament ceremonial cleansing, the people were purified by the acts of sprinkling water, offering sacrifices. There was some fasting going on, some tithing and giving. These people were no doubt purified by this sprinkling of water and the offering of sacrifices. And it's very important for us to note here this morning that these people in this worship ceremony did not fake it. You you fake it when you don't worry about being pure. You fake it by doing some rituals. We've got to have the purity before we act in the ritual, if you will. They didn't go through the motions. They didn't put on their best clothes, their best face. No, they were authentically pure before God on this occasion. And they purified themselves so that they were authentic in this high moment of worship. As they celebrated what God had done for them, through them, to them, and amongst them. So this morning, we need to ask ourselves, are we following in these steps of these Israelites? This morning, you need to ask yourself the question, are you purified before God in your worship of Him? You come to Him with clean hands and a pure heart. Every one of us has been defiled by sin in our lives. That's why we spent so much concerted time this morning in confession before we came to the table. And that doesn't need to just happen on Lord's Supper Sundays. God has provided a means for us to be purified. This table represents it. Jesus Christ washes us and He was the sacrifice for us. We use language like this often in the church. We are washed by the blood of the Lamb of God. We're cleansed by the pure, sinless blood of Jesus Christ. It's symbolic language. And the sacrifice that purifies us is that of Jesus Christ on a cross in our place. So we need to ceremonially purify ourselves purify ourselves by believing in the washing that comes through the blood of Christ and believing in the sacrifice that has been offered to God to atone for our certain sins against Him. So are you purified before God as you gather in our worship? That purity is found in belief in Jesus Christ, the substitute, dead, buried, and resurrected on the third day. Do you believe in this? And have you obeyed the words of our Lord and our God from the Scriptures? Because we are clear from the Bible. We've got to believe and obey. The obedience doesn't save us. The obedience demonstrates that we're saved. And salvation comes through faith alone. In Christ alone. 
Moving on, we see third point. Two choirs are assembled. Look in verse 31. Nehemiah says, I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. Verse 36, Ezra the scribe went before them. Verse 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to halt at the gate of the guard. Verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood where? In the house of God. And I and half the officials with me. There's two choirs. Choir A is led by Ezra to the south. Choir B is trailed by Nehemiah to the north. It's two bookends of leaders surrounding the people. They meet where? They meet at the temple of God. And along the way they're singing and playing instruments. It makes me have to look back at Nehemiah in chapter 2 when he first hit Jerusalem and he did his late night reconnaissance of the walls. Just listen to this. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And listen to this. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Well, in Nehemiah 12, the Jews know about this because the work is completed. And now Nehemiah is trailing choir B on the very walls that he inspected 50-something days earlier that were broken down. What he did in Nehemiah 2 as a secret act before mustering the people to difficult work is now finished and the people that he is with, worshiping on these walls, are joyful on the other side of really difficult work. And that's my fourth point. These people are joyful. And look at what the text says. As I want you to understand here, God gives joy to these people. And in response, these people give worship to God. Reread with me a couple of verses. Look at verse 27 again. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication. And here we go. With gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. In verse 31, we're told of these two great choirs. And in verse 43, we see that they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. And look at this, verse 43. Why did they rejoice? Because God had made them rejoice with great joy. How 
how did God make them rejoice? Let's acknowledge the sovereignty here. These people are not mustering up just human happiness in worshiping. God made them rejoice. How? I think He made them rejoice by choosing them in Abraham long ago. I think He made them rejoice by sending them prophets and giving them His word. I think He made them rejoice by exiling them after thoroughly warning them over long, long periods of time. He he blessed them and caused them to rejoice because He exiled them. And He also made them rejoice because at the front end of that exile, He promised them... And then He made them rejoice because He delivered on that promise and He returned them and He rebuilt them and He reformed them with His Word. And it's because of all of that sovereign work of God that these people are rejoicing. To God be the glory is what they are saying. Let's make no mistake about it. This is no victory prayed. Because they won a championship. This is for the glory of the God who restored them. And put them in the best place they could ever be. Faithfully worshiping and obeying His very word. They're in the best place any human being could ever be. Anybody that lives outside of that place of obedience and worship of God is destined, if not in the immediate, in the long-term eternity, destined for misery. These people are joyful because they are in the sweet spot of human existence, being right and true to their God. How about you? Have you been in this place? you in this place right now? Has God made you rejoice with great joy? This table should drive us to shed a tear over fallenness, over fondness for a Savior that would die in our place, but it should also bring a huge smile of great rejoicing. Because we take this meal and we remember the body and the blood of Christ and we say, just like these Israelites, we're in a good place. Right now, because we believe in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins and we are right with God only because of him and his work of substitution. God made you rejoice if you believe that and trust in that. God saved you by grace if you're here this morning as a believer. Ephesians 2, we read it last week, we have to read it this week. Just listen to these words. These words should stir up great rejoicing. In our hearts. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Rejoice in Jesus Christ, the gift of God 
to you and me. Sometimes it's hard to rejoice, isn't it? Because this life still has trials and tribulations. There's an ultimate day when Christ comes again that we will rejoice unbridled for all of eternity if we believe in Him. But in the meantime, there are difficult times, and so we get Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So rejoice now, <laughs> because you know you're going to rejoice for all of eternity, and that in and of itself is a cause for rejoicing. And all of it originates from God through the means of His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's my last and fifth point. All of this was done, I think, so that the world may know about God. Because in verse 43, look at the last sentence. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. There's a missions concept there. There's an evangelism concept there. The people of God are in Jerusalem. Who is far away? Because everybody's in Jerusalem for this ceremony. The, the people that are far away are not the people of God. They are the Gentiles. They are the nations. All of the ites that live around these people. And they heard the joy of Jerusalem. And what is the joy of Jerusalem based upon? The God of Jerusalem. And so the people of God are rejoicing and the people that are outside of God's kingdom in the moment are hearing it. People of God did this earlier in the rebuilding back in Ezra chapter 3. All the people shouted with a great shout when the praise of the, with the praise of the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid and the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. God's people in their unbridled worship of Him are so loud and so visible that the nations are looking in and saying, there's a really great God those people are worshiping. Is that true of us? These people are united in singing and marching and sacrificing and in rejoicing for all the world to see. That's God's design for choosing a people to begin with. And we, as a church, in modern times are to serve the same purpose as a result of being reformed by the Word of God. We are to fulfill what Jesus prayed for in the garden. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their Word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Does our life as a church, does our worship of God as a congregation point to the world and say, we serve a mighty God who sent His Son. He loved the world so much that that Son died. If you would believe, would you come join us in this rejoicing? Yes, our joy must be heard in town. Our joy must be heard around the world. Tonight we're going to hear about our joy being heard all the way in Ecuador. 
So I close with this. Where are you in your relationship to this God today? What's your position? How would you describe your life, thoughts, words, and actions in relation to the God that we've seen here in the Bible? The people of Israel, it says, offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. Will you sacrifice your life to God through Jesus Christ and faith in Him? You must because you must because God has made you pure in Christ. And it's my prayer that this would describe each of us individually. stand together.